Father, we're thankful um, for an opportunity to open your word, um, to dive in and learn what you have to, to teach us this morning. We believe that your word is inspired, that it's inerrant, that it is true, because it comes from you, our creator, who is true and right and faithful. And so we trust in your word. And Lord, we also trust that the spirit is at work, empowering the word that we might know you, that we might know you better, that we might be changed through your spirit by your word. And so do that work in our hearts today as we open your word and we consider who we are. And Lord, we pray for Megan and pray for her health as she goes home. Thank you um, for protecting her in pregnancy. We thank you for this little boy and his life. And we pray for the Presleys as they adjust to life uh, with another little one. And so we thank you for their family and we thank you for this church family that cares um, for their own so well. We love you. We thank you for time and your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a true story of a little boy named Saru, a little boy from India, and he had a brother, and they were frequenting the train to find work, and Saru was five years old, and so one day he goes with his brother to help his brother find work, and he's on the train, and his brother sits him down, and they're outside of their own little city, and he sits him down next to the train station and says, just wait here, I'll be back. Well, his brother didn't come back, and when he awoke in the morning, his brother wasn't there, and so he was a little bit disoriented and lost, and so he didn't know where he was at and which train to get on to go home. Turns out he got on the wrong train, and he went a thousand miles in India in the wrong direction, and he gets out of the train, and he doesn't know it, but he's in Calcutta, where there's thousands and millions of people, and he is lost as a five-year-old boy in India. And through a series of some unfortunate and fortunate events, he comes into an orphanage, and that orphanage finds him a home with a family in Australia. Perhaps you're catching on to the story if you've read the book A Long Way Home or seen the movie Lion. This is the story of Saru. And Saru is raised by some loving caring parents in Australia, and yet he has all these memories of his childhood at age five. And as he gets older, he goes off to college and seems to be doing well. It really hits him. And he begins to wonder who he really is, who his family is. Is his mother and father, are they still waiting on him and wondering about him? He wonders about his family and his home, not knowing where he's from or who his family is. And this is an extreme example of a man who was searching, rightfully so, for his real identity and who he is. Identity. Do you know who you are? C3, do you know who you are? See, when you come to Christ, he changes who you are. He gives you a new identity, a new name. You are his. He puts you in a new community, but oftentimes... It's very hard to adjust, even though we have the Spirit of God in us, even though we learn from the community of faith, it's very hard sometimes to adjust to this new way of life, this new community that you are in. And often what happens with some Christians is that they understand that they are a believer in Jesus and they're saved, if you will, and yet they revert back to their old identity and who 
they are. Do you know who you are? If you know Christ, C3, do you know who you really are? Do you know who you've become? I want to take a week before we start Romans and really look at the church and who the church is, who we are. It's important to understand who you are to really understand how you're meant to live because we often live out our values, whether understood or assumed. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. Turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, and we will be in verses 11 through 22. See, the Scripture has a better answer for our identity than we can come up with on our own. See, we are saved from our sins, but we are also saved into something. We're saved into a new community. So what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we behave in this new community? So Ephesians chapter 2, let me read it, 11 through 22. Excuse me. Verse 11 says this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the, the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel as strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility, while abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might, check this word out, reconcile, bring back us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Here's the identity. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. You are family, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a what? A temple. So citizens, household, temple, these are metaphors that Paul uses to describe a new identity in the church. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Verses 11 through 18, if I could summarize those, because I really want to hone in on verses 19 through 22, the identity that we have in Christ. See, before you knew Christ, you were alienated from God, and the particular situation excuse me, in this text, is that the Gentiles were far off from God. They were far, and, and Israel was near, and yet they've been reconciled. So you see the alienation in verses 11 and 12, that they were separate, they were strangers, they were aliens, but, see verse 13, <coughs> the word but, but now in Christ they've been brought near. So they've been reconciled, bringing two parties into one, being reconciled with God and with others. That would have been a game changer for Gentiles who are outside the commonwealth of Israel, as he says here. Because now they have equal standing 
with the religious Jews, the people who also make up the church. (coughs) And so alienation to reconciliation. They were Christless, foreign, hopeless, but they've been reconciled. And look at what reconciliation does in verses 13 to 18. It brings peace, peace with God. It brings peace with others. It brings access. Think about that. You're far from God, but now you have access to God. You can talk to God. You can know God. It brings you access. Think about where you were before you knew Christ and the effect of knowing Christ. It brought you peace with God, and it also brought you access to God. Sorry. Struggling here. Brought you access to God. But look at verse 19. This is where we're going to spend our time. Verse 19 says, so then, or therefore, because of our reconciliation with Christ, here's what it means for our life. Here's what it means for us. Here's what our identity is, and it gives us those three metaphors that are reference. We're citizens. We're part of God's family, and we are part of God's temple. I want to unpack those three metaphors for you this morning. So you understand clearly your identity in Christ. Our identity as a church, as the people of God, and the implications of that, which are rich and healthy, and we need to be reminded of. The first one is this. The church is part of God's kingdom. You are part of God's kingdom, so you are protected. You're protected. You're secure as a citizen of heaven. Do you see it there? Do you see this phrase that he uses? You are fellow citizens with the saints. Let me unpack this a little bit for you. It's kind of a reference to the kingdom of God. You're a citizen of a country. It just doesn't happen to be a physical country. The Bible talks about being citizens of heaven. See, God's kingdom never ends. It never has an ending. It continues, and that kingdom and its sphere is a place where Jesus reigns and rules. And guess what? You get to be, if you know Jesus, you get to be a citizen in God's kingdom. It's an endless kingdom. It's one in which you belong. It's one in which you have privileges and rights, and you are protected. Philippians 3.20 says it in, in this way. I think we have this text. But our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior The Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked about this reality in which Jesus has brought the kingdom when he came, and yet it's not quite yet. That it's here, but not quite yet. We've talked about that in terms of inheritance. Maybe you have an inheritance that's coming to you. It's yours, but it's not yet. Kids, around a Christmas tree, you have a present that says your name on it. It's yours, and maybe you even know what's in it. But you don't get to unwrap it until Christmas. Listen, God's kingdom is already and not yet. You're a part of it, and yet there's a future reality to that kingdom, but you get to be a part of it. You get to see God work in it. That means that you're a citizen, and you are protected by God. It's an incredible truth. And back in that day, these people who are reading this truth and looking at citizenship, that would have been a real thing. When they read the words, you are a citizen of God's kingdom. It would have been stark for them because citizenship was incredibly important back in that day. It was important in Ephesus. It was important in these cities, especially Roman citizenship. It gave them privileges and rights that the stranger and the alien did not have and the foreigner did not have. 
When you think about examples of that, even in Paul's life. The Apostle Paul, do you remember in the book of Acts when he goes to Jerusalem and he wants to preach? And the Roman says, no, 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 no. And then he says, I'm a citizen. And so they back off. He had the right to speak. And then he speaks and they come and they want to kill him. And the Romans arrest him and they're about to whip him. And what does he say? He appeals to what? He appeals to his citizenship as a Roman. And they're about to whip him and then they go back out of fear because he was a Roman citizen. Not just he bought his citizenship, but by birth he was a citizen. Roman citizenship, particularly in this day, was wanted by those around. So when people in the first century were reading this, they would associate with it. They would understand that citizenship is important. How much more important is it, though? As they think about their citizenship, as they think about where they live to go, I'm a part of a greater, greater kingdom. I'm a part of God's kingdom. And citizenship in that kingdom has privileges and protection and rights. You know, to be a stranger and an alien meant that you had no rights. It was actually really unsafe not to be a citizen when you came into a place. There are all kinds of awful things that could happen to you in first century without having a citizenship there. Maybe you can think about that in your own life. Think about how great it is to have a U.S. citizenship. I don't even think about how incredible it is to be a citizen of this nation, to be able to buy land and property and house and have the freedom that I have. I want you to think about your citizenship that you and I take for granted oftentimes, and yet the blessings and the privileges of it. When I was a youth pastor, we would take trips. You used to, used to you could take trips down to the valley. Like in the early 2000s, I'm dating myself, but you could take mission trips down to South Texas. And we had a relationship with a church in McAllen, and we would invest there. We'd do a little VBS for their kids, and we would build and do things for the community. And the last day, kids, if you went on the mission trip, we had a fun day. And before we went to South Padre to play on the beach, we would go to this little border town called Reynosa. And Reynosa was an opportunity just barely across the border And you go into Reynosa and you barter. And so you find out what kids are going to be good salesmen at some point. Can they barter? So you have this little spiel and you let them go and you let them barter for little things that are going to break in about two days. And the moms and the leaders are getting their vanilla. I think we still have vanilla from one of those trips. Vanilla and the Mexican dresses. And it's a fun, it was a fun time. There's no way, if you're thinking as a parent, there's no way I'm letting my kid do, do that now. But it was a great time. I remember one trip, and we had leaders that went with kids, and I remember going with these eighth grade boys. And we were in this shop, and most of the shops had a, like a security guard next to them. And I remember this shop, and one of my kids had like a, I don't know, if I can't remember if it was a 20 or a 50, but he gave them more money than they could, they could make change for and whatever he wanted to buy. And I remember um, the lady giving him some pesos back, and there's no way the amount of pesos fit with what he should have got in return, and he wasn't happy. Ben was not happy about being gypped by the people in Reynosa. And so I remember going up and trying to work it out, and the security guard came in. He's like, whatever. Like, you're a bunch of Americans. Like, get out of here. And so he got, and I couldn't help him. And so I remember Ben saying, well, I'm going to steal. I'm going to steal about $40 worth of stuff from this shop. And I remember getting close to Ben and saying, buddy, do you see that line right over there, that border that you just crossed? And you walked into foreign land 
You know what that means? That means you have no rights here. That means you have no privileges here. And if you were to do that, you're going to be in Mexican prison, and here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to call your mama and tell, you, tell her you're in a Mexican prison because you stole something from them. Here's what you're going to do, and I'm going to go with you. You're going to walk across the border, because we're about to leave, and you're going to go get into the bus. And I'm going to make you whole. I'm going to take care of your money. But you're not going to Mexican prison, because it's my tale. But think about that. He's in a foreign place. He has no rights. He has no privileges. You ever been there in a foreign place with no rights and no privileges? See, as part of the kingdom of God, you are protected. You have rights. You are secure. And these Gentiles who are coming into the Ephesian church are saying, I'm a citizen. I have right standing in the kingdom of God and most of their experience was this with the Jews who had converted to Christ. They're like, they're varsity and we're JV. And so here's the implication, and it's really important. The implication right here is this. You have equal footing in God's country with the person next to you. It doesn't matter what skin color they have, ethnicity they are, the zip code that they live in. There is equal footing in the kingdom of God. That's Paul's message, to, particularly to the Gentiles here. You have equal footing, that there's not varsity and JV in the church. There's not a scenario just because you know less or you've been a Christian in a shorter time that you're a lesser citizen. You need to learn and grow, but you're not a lesser citizen. That God loves you and cares for you as a citizen and you have rights and privileges. See, citizenship means that you have equal footing in God's country forever. Let me ask you a question. Do you see yourself as a lesser citizen in the church? Maybe it's because you don't know as much as the person sitting next to you. Maybe it's because you feel like you've done more wrong than the person sitting next to you. You're not lesser. And maybe you're here and at times you see others as lesser citizens in the kingdom of God. But this text is teaching you that you don't have that. Whether it's the zip code somebody lives in or their skin color or what they've done, they're not lesser than you. And then the question is, how do you treat non-citizens, not yet citizens in God's kingdom? How do you see them? I want you to think about how great citizenship is. You should want others around you to experience the same because there is room there is room, no matter where a person is at, there is room in God's kingdom for them to be citizens, for them to come in. It ought to inform the way we treat people who don't yet have the gospel, that they once, like you, were sinners, separated from God, and they had no ability, none at all, to measure up, no ability like you. How do we treat non-citizens? And I think there's a broader help this, a way in which this helps us in our everyday life as well as citizens. See, the church, if the church is part of God's kingdom and you are protected and secure, we should not live as fearful people. We do because we're fallen and we're finite. But we need not live as fearful people even in a post-Christian society because that's what you live in now. We don't need to be fearful. Do we want better for our kids? Do we want 
the place that we live to be a safe place for them spiritually? Do we want it to be a good place for us to raise our family? Yes. But your hope is not in this earthly kingdom. This earthly kingdom, whether it's the U.S. or somewhere else, will fail. You see, we are citizens of a greater kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, an endless kingdom. We need not be fearful. We need not be fearful of whatever party is in office that we like or dislike. We ought not be fearful even... We ought to, be important, ought to be wise, but even with our health, God has us. He has us. We need not live as fearful people. And I'll promise you this. When we do, we don't make the impact in God's kingdom as his citizens that we ought. You catch that? We need to live as people confident in the kingdom and our citizenship. It also means that we shouldn't settle, not just be fearful, but we shouldn't settle for being comfortable in an earthly kingdom that we often settle for. We settle for the comforts of this world rather than risk for God's kingdom. You see, God's kingdom, what you see here is it's growing. And we'll get to some of that in just a minute. So being a citizen of God's kingdom is pretty awesome. It gives us privileges. It gives us security. But Paul draws the metaphor down a little tighter and a little closer to home. I'm actually going to skip the metaphor of the household and, and move to the metaphor of the temple. And I want, to, I want you to see this in verses 20 through 22. So 20, look at verse 20 through 22 where he, uh, he, he gives this metaphor of a temple. See, remember in this church there are Jews and there are Gentiles. And so the Jews, when the word temple gets brought up, they're thinking about the temple that they've known for a thousand years. And all the requirements of that temple. But when the Gentiles think about a temple in Ephesus, they think about one thing. They think about the temple that's there that you can't miss. The temple that informs everyday life before they knew Christ, the temple of Artemis. Go look up the temple of Artemis. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And the life of people in Ephesus revolved around (coughs) temple. The, the temple of Artemis, and worshiping this pagan false god there. And so when Paul draws out this metaphor of a new temple, a different kind of temple, not built with hands, a temple that is people, the church, it's a different kind of temple that they belong to, they're a part of. <coughs> I've got a picture here that I want to show you, I think, of what... the what the temple would have looked like. You see in verse 20, it says there's a foundation. There's a foundation of the apostles and the prophets. I think the implication of that is that the apostles and the prophets were people who gave us the revelation of God's word. And so they were the messengers of God's word. And so the foundation of this new temple that is made of people, this dwelling of people, the church, the foundation of it is the word of God. And then you see in verse 21, it says that Christ himself is the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone of the temple. And if you look at pictures of an ancient cornerstone, what it was, it was the first thing that you put up in the building. There were rocks that went one way or the other. Kids, think about the Lego sets and the things that you do with Legos. You put a cornerstone in so it starts the building. It it was meant to be the foundation, to keep it straight, and to keep it up. 
And so Jesus, look at verse 21, is the cornerstone. He's the thing that holds the building together. So foundation is the word of God, the apostles and the prophets. If you're looking at your text, the cornerstone of the church is Jesus who holds it together. And then it says in him, verse 22, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so what's your involvement in this temple? If that's the picture of foundation, of cornerstones, this text doesn't tell us exactly what it does. It just says that we're built together. A couple other texts help us out. A couple of texts in 1 Corinthians talk about how we are the stones, the other stones that make up the rest of the temple. But this temple is not complete with stones. It's being added to. It's being built up. This text says, by the Spirit of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 say it in this way. 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and 5. If you want to go there with me, you see this imagery. Chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. We'll get there. Listen to these words. As you come to him, this is Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones. Verse 5, living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Think about this imagery. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. You see, your part in this temple, in this church, is a living stone. You catch the picture now? The foundation is the Word of God. The chief cornerstone who holds the church together is Jesus. And you are one of those living stones. And so here's what that means. It means that you get to contribute. You see, the church is part of God's kingdom so you're protected, but the church is God's temple, so your contribution to the church matters. It matters to God. It matters to one another. This image is similar to the body image, the body of Christ, where there are different parts. There's the head, there's the feet, there's the arms that do different parts, but they're unified even though they are diverse. You're a living stone, and you help build up the body of Christ. You see... That's an important truth. If we are God's temple, your contribution matters. It matters in relationship to other people. Can I ask you a question? What type of stone are you? Are you a stone that contributes to the body of Christ? Are you contributing your time? Are you contributing your gifts, your talents, your treasures, your resources? to the body of Christ. That's what the church is supposed to be. You see, you need the church. You need the church to be built up, but the church needs you as well. The church needs living stones to participate, to care, to serve, to serve in kids' ministry. There's a plug. So you get to be that. So we need to show up. We need to be a part of the church. We need to give. We need to serve. We need to belong. We need to care for the church. Ephesians 4 says it this way. He, he unpacks all these different gifts given to the body of Christ. Some are teachers and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers and servants. 
There's three or four places in the scripture that talks about gifts that God gives through his spirit to the church so that what? So that I get to do my thing? So that I get to teach? Because I like to teach? No, that the church might be built up to serve one another to the, so it's mature, so it grows into maturity to the glory of God. That's what Ephesians 4 says. And so that's what we want to be about as a church. As a local church, we want to be building up the body of Christ, that God might be glorified through our work as living stones. So Paul's audience at this point would be encouraged. They'd be encouraged that they get their contribution matters for something. And it matters in a kingdom that is endless. Talk about investment. That's a great investment. There are citizens of an endless kingdom. That's really encouraging, but there's one more. And this one more is personal. And you see it in the second part of chapter, or verse 19. Look at the second part of verse 19. We are members of the household of God. That's family language, isn't it? You're a member of a household. All these are about dwelling places, but now it's not just a big, broad kingdom or even a living stone in a church. Now it is pinpointed into you are family. If you know Jesus, you are part of his family. He's brought you from being alienated and a stranger, and he's brought you into his family. You've gone from being an enemy all the way in to the inner circle of family. And that means that you are loved. And that means that you belong. You know, it'd be one thing in this text, at least the context. And the context is Jews and Gentiles who are very different, come from different backgrounds. He's, putting, he's trying to put these two groups into one. It's one thing to be a part of a kingdom where at that time where it's like, okay, they're over there and we're over here still. And it's another thing to be a part of a church temple where, okay, there's stones over here and there's stones over here and we're contributing. It's a different thing completely to say, no, you're one. You're a family. You're together. You're under the same roof. See, in ancient days, I know y'all would love this, but in ancient days, it wasn't just the nuclear family that actually lived together. It was the extended family. It's like, what about Raymond? This is extended family living under the same roof. So mom, dad, kids, kids grow up, sons, daughter comes and lives, and they add on to the house. And he's using this imagery of a family or a household. You see, the church is God's family, so you are third, loved, and you belong. How is it one family, if, if you're thinking about it? How, how is it one family? You have the same Father, God the Father, who has granted you access to Him. Chapter 2, verse 18. Ephesians 1, 5 says, we are adopted sons and daughters into His family. So if you know Jesus you were far off, and he's brought you in as family. You've, you were an enemy of God, and now you are family. That's the amazing grace of God. And so that has some implications about how we treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are loved. We belong. There's a story, I think a fictional story, but a story about a girl named Lydia. And Lydia was raised in a great home. 
loved by her family, but it just wasn't enough. She wanted to explore. And she left her family after high school, and she tried to find her identity in all kinds of different things, in a job, in a man, and it blew up in her face. And she comes home. And when you come home to a small town and you have a rep, people don't tend to treat you the same. You tend to feel what people think about you. You tend to know that they're talking behind your back. And that's the way she felt when she came home to the little town. And then even in her family, she felt this way. And in her shame of coming back to her father's house, one day she's walking through the living room. And she comes to the mantle. And she sees an old picture. An old picture of her mother and her father with her and her senior pictures. And she's smiling, and there is life in her eyes and her face. And she remembered a very different season. But she noticed something different about the picture that wasn't there before. At the bottom of the frame, her dad had added a couple of words with his old typewriter and pasted them on the bottom of the frame. And the words simply read, Our Lydia. And she understood that her dad still loved her. No matter where she had been and how far she had gone, she was still our Lydia. You see, when you're family, you can always come back. Even when you fail family, you can always come back. And the great theologian Vin Diesel in Fast and Furious says, if you don't don't turn your back on family, even when they do. So you're always loved and you always belong in the Father's house. In His kingdom, where you're a citizen and a stone and family. I want to ask you this morning, where are you at? Where are you at in the family? Are you in the family? Are you participating as a living stone? Are you a citizen of the kingdom? Maybe, maybe you're on the outside of this God's kingdom and his church and his family looking in. I'll tell you, when I was about 20 years old, I didn't know Jesus. I grew up in the church, but I don't think I knew Jesus. But I'll tell you one thing that was fascinating to me. I was around enough Christians And not all of them had it together, which is a really bad apologetic for the church. But many of them, many of them that God put really close to my sphere loved people like a family. And I got to watch that. And I got to watch them and their confidence in God and who he is. I got to watch how they treated one another in the family of God, how they forgave one another, how they really talked about real things real things that mattered. And that was one of the greatest apologetics that God used to bring me to faith. And that's not always true. It may be the opposite. Maybe that's your experience. Maybe that's what's kept you from Christ. But I'm telling you, as the church, who's a family, who's a living stone, who are citizens in God's kingdom, 
What a great apologetic for an unbelieving world. So maybe that's where you're at. What that made me want to do is have a taste. To taste and see that he is good. And so I'd ask you, if you don't know Jesus and you're on the outside kind of peeking in, if you're far off, which the Bible says you are, he can bring you near through the blood of the cross. That's what the scripture says. Would you consider him this morning? And I know I'm not talking to people that don't know these truths about the church and our identity, but let's just talk for a minute about some obstacles. There's some obstacles to really living out this identity as being Christians in the church. We know that we're citizens of his kingdom. We know that we're supposed to contribute and be a part of the body of Christ. And we know that we're loved. We know that we belong in the family. And yet, man, the world creates and, and builds for us a lot of obstacles to that. And I just put those in a couple different categories that, are cha- that, that create some challenges for us, or we let them create challenges for us. You know, we, in the church, we kind of give in to this sensationalism sometimes. The sensationalism that says it's the next thing, it's the next high in the church, it's the next conference, it's the next event, it's the next deal. And that's really not the call of Christians. We want to be excellent at what we do in this church. And if there's room to be more excellent on a Sunday worship service or community groups or preaching or whatever it is, we want to engage in that. The Bible calls us to that. It calls us to be excellent at whatever we do. But this high that the church often gets on that says, I just want the next experience. And that kind of the twin sister of that is a a mysticism. You ever know somebody who's just kind of the Christian hermit? In the first century, there were folks that they were called the, the mystic desert people. And they would just live with their families out in the middle of the, the desert because they wanted to commune with God. And one commentator or pastor says, was there child care there? I mean, God calls us to live in the world that we live in and care for. Somebody really close to me, when he was a younger, a younger believer and had, began to exp- get, he got married and began a family, his wife would come to me and say, he just wants to spend four hours of his day with the Lord, which is great. But is he going to care for our kids and care for me? And so there's a mysticism out there. And that may be a little further off, but there's a couple other things that may hit home clearly. There's an idealism, an idealism of the perfect church. And I'm a pastor, so I could write a book about hearing from people about the perfect church. <laughs> it's often interesting. There's no perfect church. If you read the New Testament, they all had problems. We're not the perfect church. I can promise you that. And so people often leave churches because they don't cross this T or dot this I this way. And then last and probably most significantly an obstacle is individualism. Individualism. Man, I got to have, the, I gotta have the, the worship exactly like this. I got to have the preaching like this. You know, all these different things have to line up. It has to line up for, my, for, for youth group to look like this, for proximity to look like this. And so all we're doing is consuming, you know, all these different things that are obstacles. doesn't help us love the family of God very well as family. doesn't help us pursue the mission of God. And so those are obstacles that we need to know stand in the way, even this morning as you're thinking about investing. When I started talking about being a contributing stone, what came to mind? 
Well, I got this, and I got this, and I got this. See, this is going to last forever. What you invest in will last forever. So the church is a family who belongs and is loved. We're stones that matter. Our contribution matters. We're citizens. We're secure. I didn't finish the story of Saru, so I want to finish it. The little Indian boy who was adopted to this Australian family. He grew up in this home in Australia, and as I said, he struggled with his identity and who he was. And he struggled so much that he created basically this war room in his apartment to find his family because he had memories and he also had Google Earth, which is really helpful to jog memories. And so he set up this room. And one of the reasons he was so intentional about this for four years and it's, he spent almost every waking hour that he could, apart from job and relationships, on this. It was wrecking his life and relationships with people because he didn't know who he was. And 26 years after, he was lost on a train. He found his city. He found his home. And you can go online and see this. It'll move you, I promise. 26 years later, he finds his mother. And he greets his mother, and he gives his mother a kiss, and they talk. And for 26 years, he finds out he's been mispronouncing his name. He's been saying Saru, and his name is Sheru, which means lion. Do you know who you are? Do you know your identity, your real identity? If you know Jesus, you are his, you are in Christ. And that, has, that identity has some significance in the way that you live. Beyond I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. It matters how we live. We're in a new community, the church. We're saved from our sins. We're saved into a community. It means that we're citizens your takeaway today is your identity informs your investments. Your identity informs your investments. So church, invest in God's endless kingdom where you have rights and privileges. Church, invest in the church, the temple, where your contribution actually matters and it matters eternally. Even setting up pipe and drape even caring for someone who needs a meal, proclaiming the gospel, serving one another, it matters, it has significance. And last, invest in your church family. Love your church. Know that you belong. Know that others belong as you care for them. So your identity informs your investment. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for the church. We're thankful for Jesus being willing to lay his life down for the church. So when we think about serving and we think about belonging, it makes us think about Jesus, that he would love the church so much that he would lay his life down for her. So Lord, I pray for somebody here today that may not know the truth of the gospel, that they were once far off and now they have been brought near by the blood of the cross. They were once alienated, and now they can be reconciled to you, being brought back to you. 
which gives them identity. It gives them a home, a family. It makes life matter. I pray that they would come to know Jesus, that they would consider Christ and who he is. And I pray for those who claim the name of Jesus, that maybe this would be at the beginning of a semester, that this would be a reminder. Maybe we need to look at our calendars and look at what really matters to us in our lives and say, what's going to last? So Lord, work through your spirit in our hearts today in Jesus' name. Amen.